Here's Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime... Uh, eat, uh, excuse me, let me reread that. Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, that is, the rich man. Then I beg you, Father, to send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he, that is, the rich man, said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Verse 31 Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. All right, this uh, summer we're going through different parables. And this morning, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. We've got a few more parables to do in July and August. And then uh, sometime in the middle of September, we're going to start in the book of Romans. I want to give you a heads up in case you want to start reading the book of Romans in advance. We'll be charging through the book of Romans, or as they say, roaming through Romans. Um, you didn't get that? They both start with R. Come on. Stay with Thank you, Howard. I appreciate that. Um, on the social media, if you have the Instagram, the Facebook, I'm saying that wrong on purpose. I don't want you to think I'm completely irrelevant. Slightly. I'm almost 50, but there's a phrase that is often used, you will take a picture of yourself on some exotic vacation, on a beach somewhere, in a, a restaurant that you enjoy with uh, family and friends in some location that is certain to engender some form of envy in those who might be viewing the picture. And the, the phrase or the hashtag you're going to use is living my best life. You know, just bought a new car, hashtag living my best life. Uh, on the beach, living my best life, whatever it might be. This is the thing. It says, I am doing what I want to do and what uh, a phrase uh, often is used, what I was born to do, this is what I meant to do, this is so I'm living uh, my best life. Now, if you really look at social media closely, maybe your own or other people's, you'll notice nobody uses this hashtag after they've been diagnosed with some terrible disease. Just been diagnosed with a fatal condition, best life. You know, nobody says that. Just laid off from work, living my best life. Wife just walked out on me, living my best life. And nobody says that because the whole idea here is I want to demonstrate to the people who might be observing my life 
that I'm living the dream and I want them to figure out that I'm living the dream and I'm going to communicate that to them. And what we want to see in this parable, this parable should not be hashtag best life. What it is, is we want to understand what is the best life God wants for us. Here's the thing I want us to pay attention to. The question is not whether or not God wants us to have the best life. The question is when. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when this best life occurs. So let's title the message today. It's kind of a play on words, the best life. We're going to look at the two whens. We're going to look at the rich man who had his best life when. His best life was now. And then we're going to look at the life of Lazarus, and his best life was not now. His best life was then. And at the end of the parable, what you're supposed to do, if, if the parable is doing what Jesus intended to do, is for you to decide to have the better of the two. And to look at the two and say, oh, one of these is quite clearly the better one, and I want the best one. And the question is not quality, the question is time. There's a question of of when do you want your best life? So we're going to look at the rich man and Lazarus in turn. That's the way our message is going to proceed. The best, your best life now and your best life then. So look at verse 19. There was a rich man, completely unnamed. We don't know what his name is in church history. Some people have assigned him a name. It's a weird name I can't pronounce. So you can Google it after or during. This is the description we have of the best of uh, the rich man. He was clothed in purple. So what this means is he was wealthy enough to live as though he were royalty. He wasn't necessarily royalty, but he had enough money he could live as though he were royalty. Not only that, he feasted sumptuously every day. The word here is intended to communicate that he was feasting on the finest of foods on a daily basis. So every day was a new exploration of uh, delights of the palate, on purpose seeking new and interesting flavors in uh, his daily sumptuous feasting. It's not to say feasting isn't good. In fact, feasting is fantastic. Our particular culture has a number of intended feasts. We feast at Thanksgiving. It's a well-known one. Most of us will also feast at Christmas and Christmas Eve and New Year's Day. So there's a lot of feasting right in there. Uh, we will feast oftentimes at Easter. And, and what we do is we all get together and we eat a bunch of food and, uh, and we celebrate that God is good. But this guy wasn't feasting as a celebration. His feasting was defined as pursuit of personal delight and pleasure on a regular daily basis. That was the, the nature of his life, pursuing sumptuous delights every uh, single day. He was dressed in purple, and he sumptuously feasted every day. What happened to the rich man? Look down. Where is it? Middle of verse 22. The rich man also died, and he was buried. I don't want to give away the end of history to you. So this is going to be disappointing for some of you who have never heard this before. Everybody dies. So if this is new information for you, this is a devastating Sunday uh, but this is just the way it rolls. I, uh, this planet has a 100% mortality rate. Everybody on it just at some point seems to die. So the same thing happens to this guy. His purple clothes and his sumptuous feasting did not prevent that which occurs to every single human. He died. And it says he was buried and he was in Hades. This is a term. It's a Greek term, but it's intended to communicate the grave. 
And in the grave, both in, in, in Jewish ancient cultures and Greek and Roman ancient cultures, as well as our culture, there was a view of something after the grave. So what is occurring in the grave? And this was a common Jewish view because it's an Old Testament view that once you're dead, you go to the grave, the tomb. Uh, in Hebrew, it's often seen it's Sheol, the Greek version of that is Hades. In the grave, what happens to you? You are either in torment, in judgment, or you're experiencing the glories of the presence of God. And so it's clear this guy went to the grave and he was in torment. We're going to discover in just a few minutes what kind of torment. And in the grave, he saw and noticed and could pay attention to that there was another place that was not torment. And that's where Father Abraham was. And as we're going to see in a few minutes, that's also where Lazarus ended up. And his torment was such that he asked Father Abraham to send Abraham over with one drop of water that he might have just a momentary relief of his uh, suffering. In fact, he says it this way. He says, give me one drop of water for I am anguished in this flame. So a devastating place of judgment, a place of having disregarded God. He now is uh, in all of eternity without God and, and unfortunately facing the judgment. One thing to pay attention to about this rich man, in all of the things he discusses with Father Abraham, he never once disputes whether or not he ought to be where he found himself. So he understood very clearly there is a time to respond to God and that time for him had past. He's not arguing that he should not be where he was. He ends up just arguing, though, that maybe others should have uh, should have uh, another chance that he missed. And so we have this. He, We could say it this way. He had his best life now, and the result was his future was not the best. He chose poorly. He chose the temporary delights of this world to the exclusion of relationship with God, and the result was his eternity was marked with suffering. He, he chose temporary pleasures and permanent judgment. He, he chose temporary pleasures rather than permanent closeness and relationship with God. Finally, look at his relationship with um, Lazarus just for a moment because we're going to spend more time on this when we talk about Lazarus. At his gate was a poor man named Lazarus. So we learned something about his sumptuous feasting. This poor man was set at the rich man's gate, meaning the rich man was familiar with him. He knew him. Now, the parable doesn't cast any aspersions or, or, or isn't critical of the man's behavior towards Lazarus. It leaves it out because there's some assumption. This man, knowing Lazarus, you would assume at some level he might be moved toward some compassion toward Lazarus, right? Let's put it another way. This man, based on a description of his wealth and his feasting, could have increased the well-being of Lazarus a hundredfold and experienced no significant change to his own life. So he could have taken Lazarus from homeless and ill and starving, elevated him to at least surviving with some decent salve for his wounds and maybe a piece of bread and uh, a skin of wine, and he could have done so and made absolutely no alteration to his experience of sumptuous feasting. So what we see here, and everybody would have known this, they would have seen this and said, his lack of compassion indicates there wasn't something wrong with his feasting, there was something wrong with his heart. 
Something was going on inside of him where he could see Lazarus' condition and so value his feasting, he could completely disregard Lazarus' condition. So he had no compassion on Lazarus. However, once he finds himself in torment, he's moved in compassion for whom? His brothers. He realizes his brothers are still on the other side. They still have opportunity to respond in faith to the message of the gospel. They still have opportunity to to abandon their own pursuits and instead pursue God. And so he, he pursues compassion for his brothers by calling out to Abraham and saying, send Lazarus to my brothers. Now, I don't want to make Pat feel more uncomfortable than she already did, but she does. But here's, here's an observation Pat made when we were discussing this in staff meeting. I thought this was very observant. He said this, this man, um, now it escapes me, but that's how good it was, Pat. <laughs> It'll come around. <laughs> don't you ever have that happen? None of you. Okay, good. Uh, this man who had no compassion for or whose entire life was based on serving his own needs saw Lazarus as a tool for his own needs in the afterlife. So this guy is in torment. He has said exactly two or three sentences and given Lazarus two orders. Lazarus, bring me some water. And if Lazarus doesn't say anything, but Lazarus, if he was like me, which thankfully he's nice, he really, bro? Yeah, I don't think so. That ship sailed. Of course, Lazarus is much more compassionate than I would be. And then he said, oh, send Lazarus back to my brothers. And Lazarus would go, I've been in that world. That's got nothing for me. I'm precisely where I want to be. So this guy's whole life was so built on himself that even in judgment, it was all about what he wanted. And he still saw Lazarus as the one who ought to be serving him. Unbelievable. So he prays and asks that Lazarus would be sent back from the dead in order to proclaim the good news to his uh, brothers. Look at verse 28, Luke 16. I've got five brothers. Lazarus needs to warn them so that they won't come to this place of torment. Abraham said they have the Bible. They've got Moses and the prophets. They've got the Old Testament. The guy says this to Abraham. He's, now he's arguing with Abraham. This guy's real piece of work. No, no, no. But if somebody rises from the dead, they will repent. Okay, let's get our theology from the rich man, so that way you don't feel too bad for him. You have to feel bad for him, but let's measure it. What puts you in the place of torment, according to the rich man? A lack of repentance. He recognized it wasn't his wealth, wasn't his feasting, wasn't even his poor treatment of, of Lazarus. At the end of the day, he understood good understanding of relationship with God. He didn't repent. He knew the way his brothers would avoid torment is repentance. And he needs wants them to repent. And so he is saying, if, if Lazarus raises from the dead, ghost of Christmas past, right? That's what this is. Then certainly they will repent. And Abraham says, if they can't read their Bible and figure out they need to repent... They won't repent if a dead man walks in and preaches a sermon to them. Absolutely, this is true, is it not? How many people did not get saved after Jesus raised from the dead? I can tell you four of them. I don't know their names, but they were Roman soldiers. They were so scared, they were comatose, according to the Bible. They were frozen like dead man, right? Why were they frozen? Because they hadn't seen a risen man? Uh, no, because they had. 
And when they got back, what did they do? They accepted a bribe from the religious leaders to never tell anybody what they saw. Even having seen the risen Savior, a risen Savior did not fit what their life was going to be about. And so a bribe was better than believing that guy we just saw walk out of a grave. And Abraham is explaining this to the rich man. If they won't believe their Old Testament, they won't believe someone who has risen from the dead. Let's talk about the resurrection just a little bit. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 19. It's going to be up on the screen so you can follow along with me if you would like. It's a long section, and as I always say, I'm going to read it anyway. I know we're not supposed to, nowadays we're not supposed to read long sections of Scripture. It makes people bored. You know how much I care, right? Okay, just want to make sure you're clear. I'm about to read 19, 19 verses. Buckle in. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, the gospel. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one un untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can someone, some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope for this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope of our best life now... We are of all people most to be what? Pitied. Because his hope was connected to irrevocably the resurrection of the dead that is to, that is to come. Now, let's go back just a little bit in 1 Corinthians 15, back to verse 3. Point something out you may have missed. Because you've memorized this verse, and verses we memorize we tend to read too quickly. Christ, verse 3, Christ died for our sins... What's it say after that? In accordance with the scripture. Christ died for our sins. Yes. What does that mean? Because the Bible said he died for our sins. So just like Abraham, Paul is understanding very clearly 
The truth is true because the Bible says it's true. He died for our sins. Why? Because the Bible says he died for our sins. Look what he says. He was buried. He raised on the third day. And what's it say? In accordance with your scriptures. Why do I say this? Because we want our life now to be marked by a couple of different kinds of blessing. One is material blessing. We want to follow God and get more and more stuff. One is family blessing. We want to follow God and have a better and better family, more and more important friends, lots of normal stuff that are all good things, right? But we also want to follow God and have more and more exciting and powerful spiritual experiences. Now, many of us, I would suggest all of us, have had times in our life where God has moved in our life and in our hearts in powerful ways that are undeniable and significant change happens in our hearts in a few short moments. Who's ever had those kind of experiences? You can raise your hand if you want. Right? And those are fantastic. And not to be disputed and not to be uh, looked down upon. However, the primary means by which the gospel is going to change our hearts, are you ready? Is the Spirit using His Word. Boring. I want to I wanna go on a retreat. And I want to sing my favorite song. And I want to feel a quiver in my liver and have my hair stand on end. And don't, it, and I've had these things happen. Those are fun. My liver gets all quivery. It's amazing. And then we disregard the routine day in, day out, get up and discover the gospel and Jesus afresh in the Bible. He said, well, because it's boring. And it's in that mundane moments, day in and day out. If Christ is raised, he is raised according to what? His scripture. You find the risen Christ in your Bible. Seth and I talked about between services. You find the risen Christ, according to Abraham, in your Old Testament. Don't neglect it. Because our best future with Christ is defined for us in his scripture today. The rich man gets his best life now. Okay, one just quick application way to think about the rich man, then we're going to talk about Lazarus is this. The pursuit of my own desires, my own appetites, my own hungers, my own delights, my own whatever I want today makes repentance difficult. Seeking my best life today makes it difficult to repent because repent is simply turning. Repent is saying, not my will be done but yours, Lord. Repentance is saying, I don't want my life, God. It's going to Hades. It's going to Sheol. It's going to the grave. God, I want to turn from my life, which is a life that ends, and I want to go and press into your life, which is a life that never ends. And if my life is defined, like the rich man, on the pursuit of my own delights, checking off the bucket list, I don't want to miss out on any grand experience making sure that I get everything done that I want to get done before I punch out, making sure that I keep up with my neighbor, make sure that my, my brother-in-law or my, my brother or whoever, I can keep up with them because I don't want to miss out on anything. As long as I'm pursuing my, me and my, repentance is almost impossible because repentance means I turn from me and my and I pursue Jesus. So the major, major problem with my best life now is I fail to repent 
and miss the hope of a life with Christ forever. Okay, let's look at Lazarus. Are you excited? Boy, you sound like it. Yeah, okay, Seth is excited, and he's already heard this once. Well, I assume he has. I really can't. I don't know. He might have been doing something else. Let's look at Lazarus. Lazarus is named, and it's important because really the focus of the parable is Lazarus. Here's what we know about Lazarus. Lazarus was poor. He was laid at the rich man's gate. What else do we know about Lazarus? He was covered in sores. That's gross. It gets grosser. Or it gets more gross. It gets more grosser. He desired to be fed from the, that which fell from the rich man's table. He desired to be fed from that which fell from the rich man's table. So if it was a desire, was it fulfilled? No. He desired to be fed. He would have taken table scraps. He wasn't even getting that. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Okay, what we need to understand about this parable, I think quite clearly Jesus is drawing our attention to Job. Okay, so the, the description of Lazarus is very Jobian. If we could say it that way. Job lost everything. He ended up poor and impoverished. The one thing he was left with was his wife. I think her advice to him was, Job, curse God and die. He's like, okay, thanks. That's nice. He sat in ashes, throwing ashes on his head because he was very upset, and he had sores on him, and uh, dogs weren't licking his sores. He was using pottery to scrape it. You ever done that? Not with pottery. Scrape it. Okay. So what we're seeing here about this guy is he is like Job, but worse. Because Job didn't have dogs looking at his source, because the dogs here is an insult. Dogs are like the lowest of low animals. Nobody had a pet dog back then. Have dogs looking at your source. It's, at, it, it's, as one commentator said, it's insult to injury. Not only did they have sores, he was so low on the pecking order, dogs were licking his source. So Job had a good compared to Lazarus. He was starving. He had nothing to eat. He was, he, the scraps of the man's table would have improved his condition, but he didn't. The dogs ate better than him. And what were the dogs eating? Him. And they were doing better than he was. And then how did his life end? Let's compare him to Job. What happened to the ends of Job's life? Job prays for forgiveness for his, sins, for his friends, and his friends receive forgiveness, and then, and then God blesses him. And he receives several fold back what he had lost in sons, daughters, camel, sheep, everything else, right? What does Lazarus get at the end of his life? Nothing. He just dies. What did he die of? What do you think he died of? Infection, probably. Maybe starvation. So his life went from worse to bad to bad to bad to worse to dead. That was his life. And then look at his description. He died, verse 22, and he was carried by angels to Abraham's side. It's incredible. Abraham's side. What does that mean? Think back to the, um, the Last Supper. John wanted to ask Jesus a question, so John leaned back. It's one of the most interesting passages. He leans back. What does he do? He leans back against Jesus' bosom. Right? He leans back against Jesus, and he asks him a little question. Jesus is not offended. That's what you do. That's how you talk. There's no COVID-19 back then. Didn't have a mask on. Leans back against him. So you get the same picture of this, uh, this poor man with Abraham. He's by his side. Why? Because they're feasting. Because they're now enjoying a meal this man has never had before. He was, he's now laying with Abraham, enjoying a sumptuous meal. And when does this sumptuous meal end? 
endeavorance. This is a feast that will endure for all of you, all of eternity. He's at his side. He's feasting with Abraham. This feast will never end. So the contrast with the rich man is this. The rich man said, I want my best life now, and that life had an end. Lazarus says, I'll take my best life then, and that best life never ends. He endured hardship. He endured uh, being cast aside as less than nothing. He endured uh, difficulty in pain. Do you think he had any time during that life of suffering that he questioned the goodness of God? Just on weekdays and weekends, do you think every day he woke up with the same kind of prayer, God, will today be the day you deliver me? And God finally answered that prayer. And what day was it? God said, today, Lazarus, I deliver you. You're coming home. But there was never a day of relief in Lazarus' life. It was a day in and day out. Lord, is today you're going to provide for me just a scrap from that, that guy's table? And, and it never came. But what, what do we know about Lazarus? Because he is not in torment, the rich man told us why. Why is Lazarus not in torment? Because he repented. Now, this is why it's easy for us when we're in difficult to repent. This is what God, the grace God has given Lazarus. He goes, I can choose my life or God's life. Oh, you can have my life. I'm repenting all day long. I, I'm, I'm happy to leave behind my life of suffering and pursue a life with God, knowing my best life then will be a life of delights in the presence of the Savior. So it's not that he was uh, in Abraham's presence and in the presence of God for all of eternity just because he was poor and just because he was suffering. That's not why. It's because he repented, according to the rich man and according to the scripture, of course. His repentance is assumed. You ever done that? Had a great time with the Lord? Something changes in your heart? You finally say, okay, God, I'll stop doing that sin I know I'm not supposed to do. And you do for like a good solid week, week and a half. You say no to it over and over and over again. You even have an opportunity, you say no to the temptation, and then God has the audacity not to bless you. Do you believe that? Say, God, I'm, I'm, I've, I've managed to, to squeak out a whole week's worth of obedience, and you haven't blessed me? You say, well, I would never think that way. Of course you do. You're awake. This is, do you think Lazarus didn't have these things? He turns to the Lord in repentance, and he wakes up the next day hoping maybe the sores have, had dried out and they haven't, and there's a couple of new ones. He wakes up the next day and says, well, maybe God will provide for me a meal. There's that great guy who ran the orphanage over in England. What was, was it, Mueller? Does that sound right? Because I'm, I'm shooting from the hip. This isn't in the script. You're saying yes? I got a yes. You win. And, and the thing was, it would, he would sit the kids down and they would say grace for the meal that wasn't on the table. Have you heard this story? You've got to read more biographies. I read them, I just can't remember them, obviously. Um, they said, I say grace for the meal. More than one time they would say grace for the meal that wasn't there and there'd be a knock on the door and the food would be provided. Isn't that fantastic? It's wonderful. I don't want to, I don't want to belittle that. Lazarus did that his whole life and nobody knocked. Lazarus did that his whole life, and nobody brought him a meal. Nobody helped his wounds, and then he died. And his whole life, he said, God, but I will cling to you because I'll take my best life then. I don't need it now. I'm going to take it, I'm going to take it then. Look at Romans 8.18. You've memorized it probably. If not, it's short enough. You can memorize it while we're sitting here. Or not. I don't care. I'm not judging. 
Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You think Lazarus believed that? Well, you theologian, he couldn't believe that. That was written after he died. But he believed this. He, he knew, and I consider the sufferings of this time aren't worth comparing to what's coming, the glories of what Christ is going to re- reveal in us. All of Lazarus' signs were, it's going from bad, and it's going to worse, worth, worse. And here's what Lazarus did. He just believed what the Bible said. God hears him. Repentance means he is God's. And when the end comes, he will be with God forever. Trusting in God, he is worth the wait. Lazarus didn't choose suffering. He just chose better delights than the rich man. There's two restaurants in town called the Roadhouse. Got Texas Roadhouse. And you got the original Roadhouse. Texas over here. I'm showing you where they are. There's GPS right there. Who remembers King's Table? And now I'm going way back. Okay, we got some. Okay, King's Table. That's the old. That's okay. I'm sorry. We're not going down memory lane. Texas Roadhouse, original Roadhouse. They both have something in common, and it's the bread they bring out before the meal. Who's had this bread? Okay, they bring out the bread with a butter that is actually a controlled substance, according to <laughs> the Drug Enforcement Administration. If you eat this brother, you will never stop eating it. People have starved to death because there's no nutritional value to the butter and they won't eat anything else. So the, the, the rolls come out, and if you're with kids, what do you tell the kids? Don't fill up on bread. What does everybody do? Fills up on bread. The waitress, waiter comes by, you want some more bread? Yes, don't ask again. If there's a basket of bread up on the shelfy thing, I want it on my table. And they keep bringing it out. Then they bring the meal out, and what do you say? Bring me it to go. I, there's no way I'm going to eat this meal. Okay? So we go to Texas Roadhouse or the original Roadhouse. We pay uh, 100 bucks for eating with the family, 120 Yeah, no, I'm serious. It lands. And we, and we eat basically bread that costs them a nickel to make. <laughs> right? And why do, we, why do we do that? Because it's right, because I'm hungry and I want it right now. Because this bread is right, if I wait, the meal's like, I mean, that's whole like 20 minutes from now. All Lazarus did was he ate the meal that's better. That's all he did. This isn't some kind of super profound spiritual thing. All he said was there's two meals to eat. There's one to eat now. Uh, yeah, Rich, dude, you can have that. That's great. Go for it. Knock yourself out. I want the better meal. That's all Lazarus was doing is saying there's two meals to eat. I can eat my meal now or I can trust the Lord and eat my meal then. And what the parable is trying to tell us to do is just choose the better meal. That this life doesn't have anything that will truly satisfy. That by turning to the Lord in faith and pursuing his life and not my own, we find true satisfaction even in suffering. And one day we will join him in that great feast that will never end. Revelation makes it quite clear. It's how the Bible ends. It ends in a feast. Two choices. You can have your best life now and judgment later or your best life then by turning to God in faith even now. Okay, a couple of, a couple of quick ideas, application points maybe to draw it to a close. 
In regard to signs, we all, like we talked about, we all want powerful spiritual experiences. We all want signs. Lord, you want me to have this parking space, open it up, whatever we might do. But here's the thing we must come back to again and again. And and God does work in our life in real time. And there are times where we will have personal, powerful experiences with God. And we should seek those and enjoy those. I hate to be boring. You're saying too late, right? I hate... uh, God is known through his scripture. The word of God, empowered by his spirit, doing its nitty-gritty work in our heart to make us more like Jesus, that's how God is known day in and day out. Open our Bibles, ask God by his spirit to show us what it means, ask God by his spirit to change our hearts. That's the most power. Jesus is raised from the dead that we might have the spirit to know God through his word, according to the scripture. Secondly, about wealth and enjoyment, there is nothing wrong with wealth. There is nothing wrong with enjoyment. There is nothing wrong with feasting. But let's call a spade a spade, or at least call it what the Bible calls it in Deuteronomy 6, in Deuteronomy 8, and in Matthew chapter 10. Does that sound good? Seek first the kingdom of God. Is that 6? See, I'm not good at numbers. And if you're judging me right now, just pay attention. The numbers weren't there originally, so I have to know. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with enjoyment. There's nothing wrong with delight. But they will, by their nature, dull our hunger for his ways. The pursuit of delights, by its nature, has a tendency to make us less hungry for the life God has for us. It's not to say there aren't uh, good celebrations and there aren't, isn't that we shouldn't accumulate and serve God and others, but we just have to understand how it works when we have all we ever wanted or needed by our nature fallen in the Lord or fallen in our sin, we will tend to say, since I have all I need and want, I don't need or want the Lord. As long as we're willing to say that and come to the Lord in repentance when we're aware of that, we can uh, carefully turn away from the delights of this world and carefully turn to the Lord. Let's just be aware of the hindrance that wealth and enjoyment can provide to spiritual uh, growth. Okay, finally, about the rich man and Lazarus. Compassion for those who are in suffering is a fruit of repentance. Compassion for those who are suffering is a, a natural byproduct of repenting and turning to the Lord. If I have found out by God's grace that I need the Lord more than anything else, and if I have found out by God's grace He gives me all I need, my heart will be moved to ensure that those around me have what they need both in the Lord and in this life. As long as I want to pursue my best life now, I will not be able to see you. However, if like Lazarus, I agree, Lord, I want my best life then... Now my eyes are opened to you and I can be moved in compassion to see how I might be able to meet needs and more importantly show the love of Christ through personal caring. Compassion is a natural fruit of repentance.